You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everybody to our show today. We have as our guest Dr. Bob Swope who is a professor and chair of psychology at Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina. He teaches and conducts research in health and clinical Psychology. His most recent sabbatical project, he and his family lived at a therapeutic farm community for individuals with severe and persistent mental illness. There he conducted a qualitative investigation of the recovery process. Um, Also, our guest today is Virgil Strucker, who is the executive director of Cooper Reese, which is a therapeutic farm community in North Carolina. So welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Mary. Good to be with you. Thanks, Mary. I would like us to begin by talking a little bit about what is the therapeutic farm community. Okay, I could take that one, Mary. It's uh, been a very big part of my life. Um, Therapeutic community, a therapeutic farm community, is an intentional community of individuals of various levels of training who accept into the community individuals who are very vulnerable because of their uh, mental illness. And as they are accepted into the community, uh, they are experiencing a community that's nurturing, supportive of somewhat broken egos with a very structured, supportive lifestyle. Often work is involved, uh, often farm-type work, but uh, think more of therapeutic communities, I would say, as like a residential, uh, small residential college in a farm setting. So it's a very structured life for people who have been somewhat unstructured, a very engaged life for people who've been disengaged. And in this engagement process, in addition to staff who work with, dine with, um, play with, socialize with our residents, and by the way, we have a lot of residential staff in this process, in addition to those staff, there's a range of professionals who help with uh, individual and group psychotherapy, of course, good psychopharmacology, and also good nutritional therapy, because as we know, it's very important today to keep people's weight off, given what happens with some of the psychotropic medications. So it's a process that helps people actually recover from mental illness. It's one that I've been involved with myself since 1975, and I've seen a lot of stellar recoveries, people who've really gone on to lead very successful lives despite their mental illness. Uh, There are a few therapeutic communities in the country of this nature. Shall I mention those, Mary? Sure. Uh, The oldest is Gould Farm in Massachusetts, which started in 1913, growing out of what was at that point called the moral treatment um, of the turn of the century. Uh, That community is now almost 100 years old. The second oldest is Spring Lake Ranch in Vermont that started in 1933. And then there's the Rose Hill Center in Michigan. There is Hopewell in Ohio, uh, Gateway Homes in Richmond, Virginia. And now the newest is uh, Cooper Reese uh, near Asheville, North Carolina. You mentioned that these came out of the moral model in the early 1900s, the development of the therapeutic farm communities. Uh, Yes, they did. As you know, in some cases that model was um, sort of thrown away by the psychiatric, psychological community in the country as medications came out with the sort of hope that, oh, that's going to take care of everything. But, you know, obviously that hasn't been the case, and obviously it's much, it's very important not only to have good good medications, but 
a very strong program of support that is really oriented toward helping people whose dreams are again reemerging to actually achieve those dreams. Uh, but it what? did come out of that moral treatment, and what we've done, um, as I look at the therapeutic communities I just mentioned, plus Cooper Reese, is really uh, tried to add to the model, you know, the best of modern psychiatry, the best of psychology, and the best of nutritional support. Uh, so it's a comprehensive program to really help people achieve uh, outco- achieve recovery. What is a typical day like for someone at or at a farm community? Well, it, uh, they're all really quite similar. Um, you know, again, you have uh, a lot of residential staff. Uh, at Cooper Reese, about half of our staff are residential. At Gould Farm, almost 100% are residential, so there's a range. But you arise together, you have breakfast like a community. After breakfast, you have morning exercise, um, doing a variety of things from Qigong to um, exercise in the gym. After that, you have the morning meeting where you get together and talk about all the details of the day as well as, as, well as the distresses of the evening. And after that, uh, people go off to the gardens, greenhouses, woodshop, uh, kitchen, bakery, uh, doing things that are really important to the functioning of the small community. So each person has sort of a citizen role contributing to the community. Now, most of the day is structured around that work activity but is punctuated by a uh, visit to the psychiatrist, uh, your your psychotherapist, um, group uh, therapy, um, meeting with a nutritionist, a variety of things that are somewhat um, articulated by the person's uh, specific uh, recovery plan. Uh, and then the evenings are you know very social after the common dining experience. Um, you know, these settings all have you know the wonderfulness of being in the quieter countryside where you can take a walk around the lake, you can play basketball, tennis, you can sit on the porch, read a book, watch the setting sun. Uh, it's this time also that it's it's really special time for residents and staff who are, you know, relating with one another very deeply because uh, we do find that, you know, the relationship aspect of this is really where the magic is and what makes therapeutic community like this work. Um, what do, do people, are they able to come and go? Do they come for a certain amount of time? Um, how does it work? Well, in most of the uh, therapeutic communities, uh, the individual will come and stay. You know, the averages are, you know, from three months perhaps for a very highly motivated person with a mood disorder to a year or more for someone who might be coping with a a psychotic spectrum disorder. Uh, They come to the main campus and spend that amount of time, after which about 50% go on to... Uh, community support programs, which I guess in the literature you might call step-down programs. I've always been a bit confused by that, but people stepping forward uh, with greater abilities uh, in the community surrounding, um, I think almost all of the therapeutic communities uh, do this in the surrounding communities where they have uh, group residences, people living in their own apartments, uh, sort of an ACT team type of uh, staffing that supports people as they continue moving toward higher levels of recovery. So about 50% will move on after, let's say, three months to a year plus, depending upon their individual uh, recovery. And typically, what type of people come to a therapeutic farm community? Well, the, we have a mix between mood disorder and psychotic spectrum disorder, uh, a mix of ages uh, from 18 years and above. We also attract um, Professionals, so we have professionals in their 50s, for example, who've gotten off track with their uh, mood disorder and uh, 
look to a place like Cooper Reese to get back on track. So it's really varied. Uh, what we find, actually, uh, through our uh, specific outcomes research is that people with mood disorders respond faster, especially women uh, who are a bit older. I don't know what that says about us men, but you know, we're just slower to change, I guess. And then people with a psychotic spectrum disorder, it takes a bit longer, but I think that's, that's, uh, that's probably generalized. Uh, finding you know, exact benchmarks is always a bit of a challenge. I know working in residential programs that have been co-ed, there are certain challenges that um, we've experienced um, in a co-ed facility. Um, do you have any special challenges having a co-ed therapeutic farm community? Well, two things there. Um, when you have residential staff, of course you have to do some very serious training about boundaries uh, so that staff know what their role is and boundaries that they cannot cross. If you look at the resident community, um, in, I think in most of the therapeutic communities, perhaps uh, barring one, uh, the rule, so to speak, is there's no um, sexual contact between uh, residents while they are in the, uh, the main campus because the focus should be on the person's recovery. Now, is that uh, something that 100% of the time does not happen? Of course not, but uh, we don't find that that's uh, been um, a significant issue. Um, how does a therapeutic farm community different from um, what people in the addiction community would know as a therapeutic community? Very good question. I've been reading this series on therapeutic communities from England, and there's one book that really is good at comparing and contrasting those. As I think you know, or the, the listeners may know, the typical therapeutic community approach for addiction disorder comes more from the model of uh, the confrontational approach uh, the assumption that the individual might be a bit manipulative, not completely truthful, and through the confrontation, setting of uh, contracts and moving through various levels of uh, sort of from novice to experienced eventually to staff member, I mean, that's more the approach. But uh, with a therapeutic community for people with mental illness, um, it's really difficult to come from that direction because, as you know, with mental illness, you often have people who have damaged egos, perhaps from trauma, and if you put them into a situation where the uh, sort of the modus operandi is using a confrontational approach, you can really trigger uh, trauma reactions again. So um, you know, our ongoing uh, growth area is uh, determining how we can best serve those who have co-occurring disorders in therapeutic community. And uh, you know, we, like a lot of people, continue to progress in that area, uh, focusing more on re relapse prevention. Uh, from our approach, that's really more the target that we do rather than active um, addiction treatment. What kind of involvement do families have in therapeutic farm communities? Well, we encourage uh, very uh, deep involvement. We encourage each resident, of course, to sign a release of information form so that uh, staff can speak with them, and almost often, well, almost always the resident will do that. Occasionally they won't. Uh, we have staff called recovery coordinators who set up communication with families so that we can be learning what we need to learn from them about the individual and so that we can also enter into an educational process with them so that they too can better understand the mental illness that their loved one has and how recovery can occur and how they can support that. We have family weekends where uh, family members of our residents will come and spend uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's an educational session. Um, right now, we are also um, in the process of developing even more family education that would be conducted by uh, conference calls. 
So when we think about um, therapeutic farm communities, uh, you mentioned a few that are well-known around the country. And um, are these currently, is this a, a mode of treatment that's, that's expanding? Um, are people utilizing these frequently? Um, well, we are finding that uh, the demand that we have for services is most often in excess of what we can supply. And for the most part, I believe that's the experience of the other therapeutic communities as well. We also find that, uh, for example, just last week we had a group from Seattle visiting, another one from Virginia, uh, hoping that they might uh, learn from our model and go back to their communities and start something in a similar way. Uh, you know, the, as you know, methods for doing research become more sophisticated, as the efficacy of the model is more clearly demonstrated, I think that it's becoming something that people are willing to invest in um, more frequently. And by, by the way, all of these are nonprofits, so the investments are all through philanthropy. And what is the campus like? You mentioned uh, there's a bakery, there's a gym, there's a tennis court. What, how big is the campus? Well, the campus is very at Cooper Reese. Uh, we're on 80 acres, and it feels somewhat like a small residential college. Every resident has spacious uh, private bedroom, private bathroom, windows on two corners. Everyone has a corner bedroom. That's the way the buildings are built, like Frank Lloyd style, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright style architecture. Uh, so it's and a lot of the other uh, communities, um, I would say, feel somewhat the same. Some are a bit more sort of farm oriented. Some have a farm instead of being a farm. Uh, so it varies. Uh, but in our case, it's really moved more to a feeling of being like a small college campus with follow-up community programming. Um, we'll be right back to talk further with uh, Virgil Strucker, the executive director of Cooper Reef, and Dr. Bob Swat, who's going to talk to us about recovery from mental illness and what that means. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259.
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today we're talking about recovery within therapeutic farm communities. And basically what we're focusing on is recovery from mental illness for this segment. Um, I wondered if you could talk, um, Dr. Swope, about how uh, farm communities have evolved out of um, Europe. Sure. Um, Really, they go back quite a ways to um, probably the first model was in Giel, uh, Belgium, which is a a city of 35,000 people. And um, that uh, goes back really, yeah, to the Middle Ages and the, a church-focused um, community recovery. And then gradually as mental illness, uh, other than the, that one place, um, the large asylums were created and uh, were pretty hideous, really. Um, eventually, a couple of reformists came along, Philippe Pinel and William Tuke, and that's really the late 1700s and early 1800s, and really established this um, moral treatment is the English translation of it. And not not talking about morality, but looking at a a more moral treatment from the perspective of the of the treatment team. Right. And that worked to a point until again these uh, these communities got so large that even those conditions began to deteriorate. And so then there was the resurgence, I think, in Europe and in the U.S., which has been much more in the 20th century. Um, but in, in Europe today, there's uh, still quite an active therapeutic community focus. I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit how you got interested in therapeutic farm communities and what your impression of living in a therapeutic farm community was. Sure. Um, well, I... Uh, trained as a clinical psychologist and pretty much went through a kind of a standard mo- model at a large medical university. And there the focus is quite a lot on looking at efficacy of treatments and um, kind of a very structured approach to, to research. And then I was looking much more at what we don't know about recovery and, uh, and, and how very few people really understand recovery from, from the inside. And uh, about five or six years ago, the, a therapeutic community opened near Asheville, and I teach uh, at a small college in this area. And the owners and the executive director at that time approached us to, at, at our college to look at our model of education and, and asked a little bit about how that might be applied in a therapeutic community. So the conversation got started back then. We have uh, had a nice exchange between the college and this uh, community nearby, Cooper Reese, and uh, eventually when I was eligible for a research sabbatical, I decided to apply for some grants and funding to go and study recovery uh, in a very qualitative approach rather than quantitative. And uh, so my family and I moved there uh, a few years back and spent five months living um, within the community as participants. So it was really what you might call a participant-observer study Um I worked uh, within the community. We shared meals. Um, 
went to activities and so forth. And so that was actually a kind of a point of data collection, if you will, was just being a, a participant in this uh, in this community. So that was one aspect of it for sure. And um, I, I know I started in my professional life as a registered nurse, and I can remember my uh, psychiatric nursing was at Binghamton State Hospital, and um, and this was in the early 70s, and there certainly was a sense of warehousing and hopelessness and really um, high symptoms. Uh, and I can remember thinking, oh, I never want to end up here. You know, I never want to work in a place like this. Right. And when I started to work in the addiction profession, um, the whole focus was on recovery. You know, you can recover. This is what you need to do to recover. And the contrast, like 25 years ago, between mental illness and, and addiction was quite... Um, stark, I think, in that recovery from addiction seemed to be what was the expectation where recovery from mental illness was not quite talked about as much. And luckily, it's being talked about more. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what recovery um, in mental illness means. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, you're right. There's been a disconnect between um, uh the idea that one can recover and that when you actually look at the research, uh, a good number of people, even with pretty serious persistent mental illness, do recover, but you have to kind of define what that is, and and each field kind of defines that differently, uh, whether it's in addictions or recovering from uh, mental illness or physical illness. And what I really wanted to do was take a, a real kind of organic approach to understanding this. And so I tried to go in with as open mind as possible. I, I certainly had some ideas about what people might say. But so in addition to living in the community, I did kind of intensive interviews with the residents, asking them to explain recovery and uh, what it meant to them. And uh, it turns out that there's, there's uh, a very small number of researchers that really focus on this, and we're all kind of finding the same thing. And that is that people, uh, whether they have a mental illness or not, really want to be inspired and feel vital in their life and feel self-motivated. And many people who have been in and out of these systems uh, that haven't really focused on recovery and, and focus more on just kind of managing s symptoms, um, in some sense have contributed to the person feeling hopeless, as you said, or less motivated. And uh, I, I think the, the folks that, were, that I interviewed were excited about the possibility of recovery. They hadn't really thought about how they could become autonomous again, um, how they could feel competent and feel like a, a vital force. And so that was really the, the focus of my research was looking at how do people talk about that and in, in what context is that supported and what context is that squashed. And so many of these folks were coming from state institutions, for example, which do the best that they can, and, uh, but, but coming to the therapeutic community feeling um, either disempowered or um, hopeless. And when you ask them about, well, what does it mean to recover, a lot of that has to do with getting one's hope back. Um, and the number one thing that, they, that the residents whom I interviewed said, without exception, was the strength of the community itself and that they considered that to be the most important factor in their recovery. And that really makes sense if you think about what human beings want, which is at a fundamental level, relatedness. And uh, when one has mental illness, you become marginalized, 
and relatedness becomes kind of secondary, uh, even though it never goes away for the person, him or herself. So they all talked about the power of the community itself, and that, that in this particular case, was both the social support, uh, the support that they received from the staff and from each other, but, but also the natural aspect of the healing community. So as Virgil was saying, most of these communities are set in pretty nice areas as far as kind of rural farming, rolling hills, and so there's a sense that the environment itself and the natural beauty and the environment is part of the healing equation. I know oftentimes I've heard that recovery um, is best facilitated when people feel like a sense of sanctuary, when there's a safe place for people to to recover. Was that ever mentioned? That was absolutely mentioned. So what, what I did was I took these interviews that I did and then my observations um, of living there for the five months and then also interviews with staff and tried to create some themes around recovery and um I don't know, maybe you read the paper because that was that was mentioned pretty prominently, was feeling safe. Um, and so what I would do was t- talk to people once I found that that was kind of a theme and say, you know, what, what does that mean to you? And uh, so I'm just flipping through the paper and see one of the quotes says, um, I really need to have a safe environment to do my healing in, and I feel very safe here, and more than anything, just supportive. I feel supported, and I feel safe. And when safety feels questioned, like uh, if, if there's a resident that is struggling with um, controlling anger, uh, impulse control, that that puts a, a ripple in the whole community. And until that is dealt with, um, people don't feel as good about how they can recover. Um, so feeling safe was a was a key component, and part of that b- beyond the physical safety was feeling like they were. T- um, not only tolerated but appreciated um, so that the mental illness wasn't seen as a symptom, but it was just part of the person. Um, I remember talking with one young guy who had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, and he said this was one of the few places that he was able to talk about his um, his beliefs, uh, which we might label as delusions, but which he did not, and uh, he felt very supported and safe in being able to discuss those um, the, those thoughts that he was having and not judged. And I think that that's absolutely key to recovery. I mean, whether it's inpatient, outpatient, or in these uh, farm communities is, you know, the minute that you have to start checking what you're saying, um, you're taking a step away from recovering. Um, so the non-judgmental focus is, I think, is pretty key. I know when we were uh, starting Westbridge, we we were just starting from scratch, and we talked with Mo Armstrong, who's an advocate for folks with mental illness, and we said to him, you know, what kind of people should we hire? And he said, you need to hire people who can be authentically interested in me. And, I th- and we've kind of carried that ever since, that, you know, it's really important that people are authentic and genuine. Well, I, th- I think that's really um, true, and, and it's really, the I think, one of the key ways to get people to move out of this um, descending cycle that they've been in. You know, you don't, you don't get into severe and persistent mental illness without having taken a series of steps there, typically. I mean, if you remember, if you look at something like schizophrenia, which is one of the um, major diagnoses that is seen in these communities, is this person's been functioning fairly well for a while and then gets hit with a pretty um, devastating blow, 
but still it, it's a series of steps of, of then being rejected and marginalized to the point where one begins to feel more hopeless. It's not typical for somebody with schizophrenia to immediately start having suicidal symptoms. Um, I think that comes with the fact that they um, are not supported and are not people are not t- attempting to understand them and coming from that authentic place. Right, and I think sometimes early diagnosis is difficult, especially if if people are experimenting with alcohol and drugs, and um, you know they present at their PCP before they would present at a mental health center. So right. Yeah. Well, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that um, the other thing is that when you're when you really get down to it and you look at what folks are saying about their recovery, um, it's clearly going from re- regaining hope uh, from a place of hopelessness. And when you get somebody that can relate to you from this um, authentic place, I think they can really help you um, regain that confidence. Um, and those um, that struggle that you've been having. So, um, yeah, I think I, I think that has to be really valued, both from the staff and from the person who's in the recovery position. And we'll be right back to talk more about recovery within the therapeutic farm communities and recovery for mental illness. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Back everyone. Um, we're talking about recovery from, ther- from within therapeutic farm communities and how um, the farm communities facilitate recovery. And Dr. Soap, could you just tell us a little bit more about what it was like to live um, in a therapeutic farm community? Sure. Well, first, first it just was um, very, very welcoming, and uh, I think my first impression was when I was there. 
having dinner in the in the dining hall, the first thing was it was impossible to distinguish between who was staff, volunteer, and who was resident. And I saw that as a really good sign. Um, the staff and the residents all eat with each other and um, interact with each other. When I was there, there was a fairly big focus on the wellness as part of um, as part of healing. So physical wellness, and so I would often play sports or go on walks. And I, I think the biggest thing was the normalcy. You know, you might expect. Not to, I think those might have been my expectations ahead of time was that it might be um, an, an odd place to live, but it, I, th- I felt it was really uh, a healing place for me, and, and I think it was good for my family. And I know that Virgil uh, raised his children within healing communities and felt like that helped uh, his kids develop a lot of empathy. And um, But, yeah, I think overall it was it was just such a great experience and um, a really good experience for me both personally and professionally. And it's allowed me to talk to my students at my college, um, I, I think, about recovery in a way that I would not have been able to before living living down there. Over the course of five months, I would imagine you saw a significant change with a lot of folks. Can you share a little bit of the changes you saw? Yeah, I mean, I think they were, you know, very open with um, talking about what their goals were, and um, so you know, you would see people who would come from a very dark, despairing place, not talking with people, to being able to interact more, play more sports, go to the arts barn, and work on art projects. Um, Basically, re-enter into life, and even though the community is just kind of within it within the farm you know there's also strivings towards people interacting with the larger community and i think that's really the next step is how to get the residents not only feeling connected to the the community that they're recovering within but to the larger community in which the uh, which the farm or healing community is set so i saw a lot of people beginning to reach out more um people challenging themselves i i remember one one fellow who said, um, you know, came to me directly and said, you know, I'm at a really tough moment right now, and I I need some support or I need some advice. And you know, they they knew my role was as a not a clinician there, but felt comfortable enough to um, talk about the things that they were working on. So I think, yeah, I, I saw quite a lot, and and um, some of the some of the people were had been there for some time before, and. So you got to see people who were on the on the way out and who were getting ready to live in the transitional housing. And then when I moved back up to Asheville, that was a nice thing for me as well was um, having a connection to there's a, I don't know what you call it, Virgil, the transitional housing in, in Asheville um, where there's quite a lot of support given um, so that it's not you just immediately go back out and try to live on your own. How would you define recovery? How would somebody with a mental illness know they were in recovery? Uh, let me try a little bit here. Um, how would you know if you're in recovery? Well, if you um, – here's just a couple of stories. I'm immediately reminded of a young woman who came to us and whose mind was so filled with psychotic thinking and noise that she was just tormented day and night. And the moment that recovery really started was when she said, Virgil, 
I can hear the ducks flying over as they're flying south, or the geese, I guess it was. She hadn't heard that before. So she was beginning to feel a sense of safety, a sense of grounding. That opens the door to recovery, especially if the person can move beyond denial or lack of insight. And then we can become partners. Um, one way that we're beginning now to partner is to describe our recovery program more like a small college that offers a bachelor's degree in recovery. Um, the person's general experience uh, progresses across what we call seven domains. It's sort of a comprehensive way of looking at uh, how each of us would like to progress through life, from physical to mental health to relational to spiritual to uh, connectedness to uh, productivity to purpose in life kinds of advances. And we help the person monitor their advances across that broad spectrum. And then, of course, and when you're doing your BA, you pick a major. Uh, and each of our residents uh, does have a plan that is very specific that starts not with a diagnosis but with a dream. What is it that they really dream that they could accomplish? And then we work with them to derive goals and objectives out of that. So they see their progress in very tangible ways as they go step by step toward that dream. And I would add just one word, if I could, along with that word of hope. I mean, you do in communities like this, number one, accept staff to be on your team who can have authentic, genuine relationships. These are also people who are not only able to inspire and to provide hope, but because of the authentic relationship are also people who are accessible to the resident when the resident needs to talk about their despair uh, so that it's a safe place to do that as well. So there's this oscillation between the two of those as recovery progresses. So um, would somebody be taking medication who was on recovery, who was in recovery? Because in, in the addiction world, we kind of say, okay, we, we look at how long someone's been abstinent. We look at um, whether they're working, if they've stayed out of jail, um, if their relationships with their family have healed. Um, for people who are involved in self-help, there's 12 steps that they participate in. So in response to your question about medication? Yeah. Uh, yes, most of our residents will continue medication. Now, we shy away from polypharmacy mm -hmm. and have, in fact, chosen a psychiatrist who uh, tries to find the right minimal mix of medication to help the person continue their recovery. Our psychiatrist also works with our nutritionist to supplement these psychotropic medications with uh, nutritional supplements, which can sometimes round it out without some of the uh, side effects of the psychotropics. But we are definitely supportive of uh, the right selection of medications. We go to great lengths to try and assure that that's achieved. Uh, we do see uh, recovery as being not just intentional, but also it has a biological side. Um, in New Hampshire, there's more and more uh, recovery-oriented uh, self-help groups for folks with mental illness. Um, do you have any of those? I know we have um, in Asheville, we have a group that uh, is for people with bipolar illness. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and also even at the thera therapeutic farm, um, I, when I was living there, I remember one of the residents started a bipolar awareness group within the community, and that she did all on her own and uh, was really not looking for staff support on that, but just a space to do it in, and I and I thought that was a a really good example of somebody empowering themselves. 
And then I, I think going back to the medication issue, um, I think most people with uh, persistent mental illness are probably going to be coming in on medications. And I think the question is, what what does that do for them, one? And also the second question, which is just as important, is what does that mean for them? And um, I think that for people who are recovering, you want to help them see that taking psychiatric medication doesn't necessarily label you as a psychiatric patient. Uh, it's taking psychiatric medication as a way, as a choice, um, and as a, a part of the path towards recovery. And there certainly is a stigma for taking psychiatric medication, just like there's a stigma for having a mental illness or a substance right. use disorder. I think less and less. I see the world becoming more accepting of it. Um, and not it's not the case that we necessarily need to hide it. We do need to continue fighting that stigma, though. I completely agree with that. Can, so is, did you find anything else about recovery, Dr. Swope, in your research? Um, I, I would say uh, the things that I've mentioned about being supported by others and the feeling safe were key. A couple of other um, things, themes that came up were um, managing symptoms so that we don't want to forget the basics, which is that um, for some residents they would describe re- recovery as functioning, and that's that was the starting place rather than uh, necessarily being able to talk about their dreams and goals right away. The first thing was how do I stop staying in bed five hours a day? Um, so I think I think it was it was good to hear that as well as that managing symptoms was a part of it. Um, and then the other aspect, which I think is somewhat unique to these therapeutic farm communities, is actually the work itself. And that is that the residents said that the work needed to be meaningful, um, and helping the residents see what the meaning was, I saw uh, as as key to their recovery. So even if one was on kitchen duty or cleanup duty, being able to see what the meaning was of that. It was probably a little easier for the residents who were on the farm who were maybe planting and harvesting greens that they later ate that night. Um, That connection was pretty clear. But I think the overall point was that uh, within recovery, one has to find meaningful activities, and those cannot be imposed on people. Um, People need to have choices about those and I think that that's where the basic need for autonomy comes in. Um, and remember, these are folks that have been often really stripped of recover. Uh, excuse me, of autonomy. Right. Um, we'll be right back for our final segment, and we'll learn more about Cooper Reese and barriers to recovery. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance.
substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking about recovery within therapeutic farm communities. And, Dr. Swope, you were mentioning about the things that facilitated recovery. What did you find were the barriers to recovery? The barriers to recovery really range um, from, I think, biological barriers, uh, including, you know, when you're talking about schizophrenia, for example, there's pretty good research showing that, um, especially in in, in younger people who are struck with the disease earlier, that there is pretty measurable brain tissue loss, and a lot of that comes in the frontal lobe. So one of the things that is a barrier is the loss of initiative that often comes with that tissue loss. And so I think that's where recognizing that um, taking small steps towards regaining that initiative I think is important. Some of the things that the residents often would talk about was um, the losses that they had experienced personally, the loss of their job, the loss of self-respect, loss of their identity. Um, and then with the kind of the loss of motivation, um, the folks were often really not doing much at all, just not not creating, not working, and in, in a situation of feeling very stuck. So I think the barrier was how to unstick oneself and um, there's also some interesting research being done now looking at how literally using the hands um, can reshape some of the symptoms that go along with depression and schizophrenia. Um, and there's, uh, yeah, that's some neat research being done at, uh, I think it's at Randolph-Macon College. But I think, I, I think that the losses and the person has just felt so marginalized and how to begin to trust being accepted, being respected, and um, being able to get that initiative back. And so much of the focus on on recovery in the past has been on treating the individual and not really thinking about the second major aspect of the individual, which is the environment in which he or she finds him or herself. So you can't really do the treatment or the recovery without also considering the environment and I think, luckily, people are seeing that more now. Virgil, could you um, share with us a little bit about Cooper Reese? You mentioned this is one of the newer um, therapeutic farm communities that have uh, developed. Absolutely. Um, Cooper Reese uh, was founded by Don and Lizbeth Reese Cooper, um, not for their daughter but because of their daughter's experience, and they found that they could find very little in the southeast that could be of help. 
So they looked around the country, ended up focusing on the therapeutic community model, and decided that that was what they were going to try and build in the southeast. Um, in that process, um, knowing that I've been somewhat involved with uh, similar startups in the past, um, I got a call from Don and Lizbeth, and it, it was one of these dream calls, Mary. Mm-hmm. It's like imagine being connected with uh, the kind of energy that says, you know, if we can join together as a team, there will be no limitation. We will do all that's necessary to make it possible for people with mental illness to have a successful recovery. So with that, my wife and I felt almost like a calling. So we joined the Coopers and the wonderful board they'd assembled and over now the years, uh, the wonderful staff that we have that also are equal in optimism. It is a process of philanthropy as well as positive attitude. Uh, We've had a great board that, under the leadership of Don and Elizabeth Cooper, has raised to date over $17 million uh, to build and endow the organization. And also, I would add that we're continuing with that kind of energy. Um, We're very curious about the kind of therapeutic community that we are and having it exist in an, an urban setting. So we're in the process of opening an urban therapeutic community in Asheville next to the university, mm-hmm. uh, which will be have many of the features of Cooper Reese and the community in the, in the country, but will be focused on more of the urban experience, especially supporting younger people who might like to go to college while they're also coping with their mental illness. So we're in the process of doing that and being very excited about it with, with the staff that's equally excited. Um, there are other uh, family-started therapeutic communities around the country as well. Is that typically how therapeutic farm communities get started? Uh, Yes, it is. Um, If I look back at uh, Gould Farm, which I mentioned is the oldest in the country in 1913, it was Will and Agnes Gould who brought their almost their entire family to help start that place. Then the next one was the Sarka family for Spring Lake Ranch in Vermont, which started in 33. Uh, The Moore family in Richmond, Virginia, uh, the Kelly family uh, with Rose Hill in Michigan, and uh, the Rankin family with Hopewell in uh, Ohio, and now the Cooper family. You know, it's families, I mean, as you know, mental illness strikes people regardless of socioeconomic background. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that maybe some of our words are reaching other people like the Coopers, the others that I just mentioned, so that we could stimulate them with the idea that, you know, they too could do something like this because the need is there. Um, I would also be remiss if I if I wouldn't mention um, a group called ARTA. Uh, there's a group that has somewhat similar philosophy that goes beyond the therapeutic community in the in the countryside and has some of the similar recovery, recovery philosophy more in an urban setting. And there are about thirty some members. I know Westbridge is a, a very uh, involved member there, and people can find that at artausa.org. Uh, get connected with all the members there. And if people wanted to find Cooper Reese, um, it's a difficult word to spell. It's C-O-O-P-E-R-R-I-S dot O-R-G. And we would welcome any inquiries um, and uh, always looking to grow, always looking to hear from other people. So in the last couple minutes that we have, what's the most important thing about recovery people should know from, for folks who have mental illness? I could add one thing and maybe let Bob then also. um, What I find to be the most important is to actually enable the person to get to the point of believing in themselves. As we train staff, we say that one of the first things that we are to do as staff, uh, and again, these are very authentic 
individuals is to believe in people even when they don't. And if we can move people to beginning to believe in themselves, it's wonderful what unfolds for these individuals. It's wonderful what they can experience. Um, and I could go on and on telling you some some stories of tremendous recovery, but I know we don't have time. Um, but uh, that belief in oneself, from my point of view, is the key to opening and moving forward. And I would add, as a coming from the treatment side and clinical psychology, is that uh, we in the mental health profession need to recognize, I think, more than we do, um, the basic fundamental need for self-determination. And when one has a mental illness, you don't lose that need. And I, I believe that some of our treatments don't recognize that as much as um, they could. And recognizing that people have the right to uh, de- determine their life course, um, I think, is fundamental to their recovery and to- towards the way that people work with uh, with them and, and help treat them. So, yeah, I would say self-determination um, and uh, relatedness as as being fundamental, relationships being the key to people um, coming back into community. Well, and I think um, relationships are the key to any type of healing. And whether you're in an urban setting or a, or a more rural setting, that staff being able to connect with people is really, really, I believe, fundamental to anyone's recovery. Absolutely. You know? I mean, and the relationships are, they're fun. You know, here we are having fun talking about recovery. I love it. <laughs> well, and, and I think a lot of what both of you have said is that believing in people, understanding that recovery is possible, and that mm-hmm. people are more than their diagnosis, and that mm-hmm. all of this stuff doesn't require money. It just requires the way people think. And and that's so important that sometimes we think there are these huge barriers to to finding solutions when most of the is it's in how we perceive people. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't really cost anything to perceive someone differently. That's correct. Could I just add something for the family? Mm-hmm. As I think about how the person moves forward believing in themselves and the recovery process begins, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a father in Houston about a week or two ago. He, in tears, says, you know, my daughter's back. Now, she may be a different daughter, but she's back because of the magic of relationship that she had in the therapeutic community. She can now relate again with her father. And as you know, family relationships are ultimately some of the most important relationships as people continue to move forward. They're absolutely key to uh, to people, I think, um, maintaining their recovery and even wanting to be in recovery um, because they do get so disenfranchised and marginalized. So I want to thank you both for taking the time to be on our show today. And um, this is wonderful. And ARTA, once again, is A-R-T-A-U-S-A.org. Correct. And Cooper Reese is C-O-O-P-E-R-I-S.org. Yes, Mary. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, that's great. Um, please check out both websites. Um, and Dr. Swope, Swope. Well, I'm sorry. How can people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your research? Uh, they could uh, look up our college at Warren Wilson College. It's in. Uh, you could just Google that. Uh, it's Warren W A R R E N, and then Wilson and College, and then there's links to the um, 
psychology page and more about me and, and uh, the research and more about our mission as a college. And would they be able to get your article there? Um, they will. If it's not there now, they will be able to soon. Okay, right. wonderful. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us today, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. the invitation. Happy Thanks, Thanksgiving. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Yeah. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.